The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That last forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know That He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. As stated in an earlier episode discussing types and shadows, when we study all of Scripture, we tend to see that indeed God seems to create all things according to a pattern which testifies of Him. As we continue to look and study the visible and invisible things of creation, we are able to increasingly see God's reflection to some degree in that mirror. When these examples occur within Scripture, we characteristically refer to them as types or shadows. We shall also see that ultimately, as with all Scripture, that these types and shadows point to the substance, which is Jesus. In the previous 12 episodes, we took an in-depth examination of the various types, shadows, and the substance which were revealed by God through the book of Exodus. In doing so, we saw how God used the historical saga of Israel's entrance, bondage, and eventual deliverance from Egypt by Moses, parallels, and in fact foreshadows its substance depicting all God's people 
who have entered into bondage of sin and are delivered from their sin through grace, by faith, in the finished work and imputed righteousness of Jesus. In the last episode, we continued our study via the book of Numbers. As we concluded episode 12, we saw how Israel, God's people, were unwilling to trust God to serve as their deliverer to enter the promised land. It is perhaps worth commenting that Jewish tradition says it took 40 days for Israel to physically get out of Egypt. It took 11 days to physically get from Egypt to the border of the promised land. After God's people Israel were unwilling to place their faith in God and had the desire to return to Egypt, it would take 40 years of wandering in the wilderness for God to take Egypt out of Israel and to await a new generation willing to place their faith in Him. In this episode, we begin with chapter 16 of Numbers. Here, apparently, although Israel had seen the incidents and the results with Joshua and Caleb, the incident with Miriam, the incident of the manna at Kibrathahatava, the incident of the lusting for flesh from the mixed multitude, and the incident of the golden calf, there were still those who would question God's authority. Here, in chapter 16, we find Korah and 250 princes of the assembly. These 250 were not from any mixed multitude. They were not simply the average Israelite. These were, according to the text, men who were famous and renowned, who gathered themselves together against both Moses and Aaron. In this case... The issue was that they were not content to be merely one of God's chosen people. They saw themselves as having the right to be priests like that of Aaron. They knew well that the priesthood was a selective appointment to the family of Aaron who was of the tribe of Levi. But Korah and his confederates had successfully convinced themselves that they had their respective claims to the right of priesthood. Korah made his claim due to the fact that he was also from the tribe of Levi, despite the fact he was not from the family of Aaron. Dathan and Abiram were from the tribe of Reuben, and they likely based their claim to the priesthood based upon their ancestor Reuben's original claim of right as the firstborn of Jacob, later named Israel. Unfortunately, Dathan and Abiram had conveniently forgotten of Reuben's sin recorded in Genesis chapter 35 verse 22 of having an intimate relationship with his father's concubine Bilhah. Because of this grave sin, upon his deathbed Israel later denied the right of the firstborn due Reuben. Lastly, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and 250 other mutineers in general found common ground in their conspiracy with what turns out to sound like a very plausible argument. In Numbers chapter 16, verse 3, the crafty complaint is lodged, saying, quote, And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said unto them, Quote, ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, 
every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord, unquote. One can scarcely think of a more persuasive selling point than to appeal to the pride of people individually and corporately. Behind every good lie is a grain of truth twisted and taken out of context. The truth is that Israel were and are God's chosen people. They were and are set apart as being special to God. They were and are called to holiness, righteousness, and sanctification. This is also the case with all God's people in general, whether it be Israel specifically or God's outcalled ones, the church. Each shares a distinctive and special place in God's heart. Unfortunately, Korah and his confederates did not see the type. They certainly did not see, much less understand, the substance casting the shadow to the type. Korah and his group sadly only saw and understood the shallow surface elements in their midst. They likely saw the priesthood as nothing more than a purely political position. Perhaps the prestige, power, authority, honor, and respect given the title and office was what they sought. Whatever it was they wanted, they had forgotten or refused to acknowledge that the position of priest was a position delegated and called by God and could not be bought, negotiated, or lobbied. Moses and Aaron had both been selected by God for their respective roles in God's plan of deliverance from Egypt. Despite repeated and ample proof by God of these appointments, Korah and his followers accused Moses of orchestrating all of what had happened from Egypt thus far as an excuse and opportunity for Moses to usurp or assume the position, power, and authority that he had for himself and Aaron. They also denied in their accusation that God had delegated the power and position to Moses and Aaron. In short, this episode with Korah and the 250 was nothing less than Israel's first historical instance in a literal sense of a coup to overthrow Moses and Aaron. To give further insight along these lines, Jude, the brother of Jesus, commented on this incident briefly in his epistle. In chapter 1, verse 1, Jude directs his letter, quote, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, unquote. Here, the called are the outcalled ones, i.e. the ecclesia, the church, the bride of Christ. Continuing in verse 3, Jude states that the purpose behind his epistle was to, quote, exhort you, i.e. the called, that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints, unquote. In verse 4, Jude gives the explanation why the church must contend, saying, quote, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, unquote. 
Jude then goes on to give a series of analogies regarding the certain men in question. He begins aptly in Exodus as follows in verse 5, quote, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not, unquote. In verses 6 and 7, Jude digresses to the Genesis incidents of the angels who left their first estate and who are now in darkness and chains until the day of judgment. Jude also mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. With these events in view, Jude likens the certain men in verse 8, saying, quote, Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities, unquote. Although we don't know who these certain men were, what they were doing, or whom they were doing it to, we do know that Jude's analysis was that these certain men's behaviors were cut from the same cloth as that of the above incidents. But Jude is not done. For comparison, Jude recalls Moses' death, which is a future event in our series of episodes here, saying, quote, Yet Michael the archangel was contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee, unquote. Now today, many modern-day sentiments would either dismiss Satan, i.e. the devil, as a mythological character, along with God and the Bible. Some would characterize Satan as a comic book personage who only has those definitions, abilities, or power bestowed by man's imagination. Others would believe that Satan exists, but has no power or authority at all and is to be dismissed or disrespected. But here, Jude reminds called-out believers, saints, God's elect of two things which are worth mention. One, Michael is a very powerful angelic spirit being who is the highest of the heavenly angels, one of the covering cherubs. In order to fully appreciate Michael's rank, authority, and power in contrast to Satan, we need only refer to Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, which says, quote, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven." And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him, unquote. Two, Satan does have authority and power in many respects. The proof of the matter is found in both Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, and Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. In both accounts, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested of Satan. In our accounts, we read, quote, And the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. 
Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Unquote. Notice that Jesus never questions Satan's ability or authority to do what he was saying. Putting the issue into a more modern analogy it would be like any given billionaire offering to give you or I however many millions of dollars if we would become their servant. Now, if it were well known that they were in fact very rich and powerful, then no one would question their ability to deliver the, what they promise. On the other hand, if I come to the average person and promise to give them the Golden Gate Bridge if they will become my servant, then there is ample room and cause to question my ability and authority to deliver such a promise. This is exactly the situation here. Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of this world if only Jesus will worship Satan. So if Satan is this authoritarian, powerless, impoverished, non-existent legend, then we would expect Jesus to say, A, nothing, because Satan doesn't exist. Therefore, there is no conversation to engage in. B, Jesus says, What are you talking about, Satan? The kingdoms of this world don't belong to you, so you have neither the power nor the authority to offer them to me, much less to give them away. Instead, Jesus tells Satan that it is against God's command to worship anyone other than God. Taking all this into account when we examine Jude's comments on the issue recorded in number 16, we have a better understanding of Michael and Satan's respective roles. The question must be asked then, if Michael effectively defeats Satan in the future incident given in the book of Revelation, then why does Jude record Michael's more submissive and respectful attitude at Moses' death? What is the difference? Why can't Michael simply say to Satan, Get lost. Do you know who I am? I'm the guy who's going to throw you out of the heavenlies in the future. I would suggest that according to the entirety of God's word, the issue was one of timing. In this case, we have the truth of the matter revealed in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Quote, and the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Unquote. This verse gives us the theological reminder that God had intended for Adam and Eve, as well as their descendants, to rule and reign, clothed in the image, grace, and righteousness of God. As we know, Adam and Eve forfeited their authority to rule and reign when they chose to abandon God's covering grace and become enslaved to the dictates of sin and rebellion. Adam, Eve, and their descendants, and indeed all creation, would now be under the bondage and rulership of Satan where they had chosen to place themselves. This forfeiture of rulership continues from Genesis 3 until whatever moment in time when God accomplishes the victory recorded in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. At the time Michael contended with Satan over Moses, 
This battle and its victory had not come, and Satan was very much an authority with power not to be trifled with. Neither Michael, you, I, or any man or angel are presently in a position to adopt an attitude towards Satan or his angels other than that of Michael who said, quote, The Lord rebuke thee, unquote. It must be remembered that if this type of humble, respectful attitude is applicable to Satan and his forces, then how much more should be the godly fear, reverence, and respect to God and his appointed leaders? This is precisely the point Jude makes as he concludes his commentary regarding Korah in verses 10 and 11, saying of the certain men, quote, But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Unquote. So Jude reminds God's elect then and now to beware against anyone like these certain men who, like Korah, had forgotten their place and were unwilling to be submissive to those who are in authority. Further, as most commentators rightly point out, Korah and his confederates refused to acknowledge God's hand in sovereignly choosing and calling whom he wills to perform his service. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 also bears comment on this saying, quote, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in these things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them who are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he sought as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins." And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God. So was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that saith unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek." In order to demonstrate who is doing the calling and who is really in control, Moses instructs Korah and his band of 250 to bring each man his censer with fire and incense. In effect, Moses proposes that since Korah and his band want to be priests, they should bring the tools necessary to act in that capacity. Further, it would seem Moses intends that once all are gathered, that God himself will decide who will be accepted as a priest and who will not. When they do gather as instructed, Moses prays to God to open the earth and to swallow Korah and his band. And in fact, immediately thereafter, God tells Moses and anyone else who will obey to separate themselves from Korah and his confederates' tents. Whereupon, God causes the ground to open up underneath Korah and his group, swallowing them alive, along with their houses, their families, and all of their goods. 
Amazingly, no sooner than 250 Israelites are swallowed by the earth for their rebellion than the very next morning we find Israel accusing Moses and Aaron in verse 41, saying, quote, Ye have killed the people of the Lord, unquote. Here again, the same rebellious mindset which destroyed the 250 now has spread to infect others in the Israelite camp. There was a growing inability on the part of some to correctly place responsibility where it belonged. As this group gathers against Moses and Aaron to do whatever evil intended, God's wrath goes out against the congregation. At this time, Moses, who was half the target of this movement, orders Aaron, who is the second half of the target, to, in verse 46, take his censer, some fire from the altar, put on incense, and go out among the congregation to make atonement for the people against the plague which had begun. In verse 48, it is said that Aaron stands between the living and the dead to stay the plague with his atonement. In chapter 17, God commands Moses to take the token staff or rod belonging to each head of the twelve tribes. It is said that each staff or rod bears the name of the head of the tribe so as to identify it. Aaron's name is written upon the tribe of Levi as directed by God. Further, all twelve rods are placed in the tabernacle before the testimony. In the morning, Moses returns to the tabernacle to observe the rods. Upon arrival, he discovers that Levi's rod, with Aaron's name inscribed upon it, has blossomed, budded, and produced almonds. Moses then emerges unto the congregation with all twelve rods and displays the eleven along with Aaron's which had blossomed almonds. In verse 10, we are told that Aaron's rod will be returned and maintained in the tabernacle to be kept as a token for future generations against any who would entertain the idea of rebelling or murmuring against God and so that none will die as a consequence. Looking back at all of this, the question is, were these events which began and ended tragically as nothing more than a historical footnote? Or is there more? If these were types, then what is the substance? Hebrews 9 speaks of the tabernacle in the wilderness and its various implements. In verse 3, we are brought to the Holy of Holies, where in verse 4 its contents are given as follows. Quote, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, unquote. As Hebrews continues, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it clear that in our numbers account, Aaron is, and his rod are, the type of Jesus and his priesthood. We know this because, according to Hebrews, Aaron's rod which budded was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, which is itself the type of Christ. Thus, Numbers reveals that Aaron's rod that budded was a type and a shadow only, which could only become the substance fulfilled in Christ, our better ark. 
Just as Aaron was selected to be Israel's high priest and mediator between Israel and God, Jesus was selected before the world began to be a better and ultimate high priest and mediator between all God's people and God the Father. Just as Aaron was the only one able and capable of making atonement and propitiation for the sins of Israel, Jesus is the only one who can rightfully make final and complete atonement and propitiation between all God's people and God the Father. In the case of Korah and the 250, we see the type of all those throughout time who attempt to convince themselves and others that they possess the necessary resume of name, identity, ability, works, deeds, skills, etc. to bypass or do without Aaron in order to approach, serve, and worship God and to please God based upon their own merits rather than the merits of Jesus and his completed righteousness, which is the substance of Aaron. The end result of such folly, like Korah and his band, is that despite the best arguments and the sincerest of efforts, Korah and his band, like all who follow in their footsteps, fall short, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and are swallowed alive to go down to Sheol. Like the type of Aaron going among the congregation of Israel with his censer filled with fire from the altar and incense to stand between the living and the dead and stay the plague of God's wrath against rebellion, so too Jesus stands in all eternity between the living and the dead making intercession before God the Father, quenching the wrath of God the Father, which Jesus voluntarily had fall upon him in our stead on the cross. Finally, the type of Aaron's rod which budded is the type depicting Jesus's, who is the only one throughout time and eternity who has the right, the power, and the authority to stand as high priest before God the Father. The entire seventh chapter of Hebrews comments fully, contrasting between Aaron and the Levitical priesthood and Melchizedek, who is also a type of Jesus in his role as the ultimate and eternal high priest. In the end, with regard to having a priestly intercessor before God the Father, Jesus himself comments in John chapter 14, verse 6, saying, Quote, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Unquote. Every other person from every other tribe on earth, every other method, effort, or work apart from Christ begins ends and remains like the dead wood of the eleven rods from the tribes of Israel. It is only Jesus Christ, the substance of Aaron's rod, which by Jesus' shed blood and imputed righteousness brings forth new life from that which by all accounts was long dead like the wood of the rods. 
By his resurrection and ascension, we, like Aaron's rod, are risen along with Christ to new life. Not only so, but with the gift of his Holy Spirit implanted in us, we, like Aaron's rod, blossom, bud, and bring forth almonds via the various gifts of his Holy Spirit. This concludes this episode. Please join me again for part 14. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I would encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust